0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Hi there, and welcome to Outward for the month of January. Um, happyish New Year, I guess. Uh, I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward, and we're recording a little less than a week out from the inauguration. And like a child anticipating a trip to Disney World, all I can focus on right now is how many sleeps I have left. It's just five, (laughs) y'all. Five sleeps. What a great way to put it. Five sleeps.
2: I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate, and I had a disturbing experience on New Year's Eve that I'd like to share. Um, my spouse and I were getting ready to have a little dinner with our pod, and she wanted to wear a bow tie, and we realized we have both been so starved of occasions for formal wear that both of us had forgotten how to tie a bow tie.
1: Oh, no. It was like
2: our gay muscles have completely <laughs> atrophied. And we need a training regimen to work them back up to normal again. Wow!
3: Apparently, how to tie a tie is the number one Google search mm-hmm. of all time. <laughs> so, Christina, I
2: don't know if that makes me feel. You're you're or
3: worse. you're you're not in you're in plenty of company here.
1: Yeah, I think all of our fashion skills have atrophied, probably, at least. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely.
3: I, I'm, I'm Ramon Alam, and I am wearing my shorts right now as we do this conversation. And just to <laughs> prove how atrophied our social and fashion presentation skills are. But, Brian, to your earlier point about having five sleeps left until we have a new leadership in this country, I don't want to be that person who's really smug about New Year's resolutions. But thus far, I have really kept to my New Year's resolution, which is to invest more care into the quality of my sleep. Mm. And I cannot recommend this more highly. The principal step that I took toward that goal was to take social media off of my cell phone so that when I'm going to bed at night, I don't feel like looking at my cell phone. It's really worked and I've really noticed a difference in the quality of my sleep. So highly recommend to both of you guys.
2: When you're like getting ready to go to bed and you're in bed, are you ever like, Ugh, I have a really good tweet and then like pop up and <laughs> run, run to your laptop? and
3: like, Thus far it? I haven't. And I am operating under the assumption that someone will tell me if like the president has died or war has broken out, <laughs> that the world will endure even if I'm not looking directly at it. And you know what I do instead? I do the New York Times crossword puzzle app. And that's, so that's been
2: my self-care yeah. over the pandemic. I feel too.
1: smarter, even though I'm not. <laughs>
2: you really know what an FA exactly, is. Exactly,
1: exactly. <laughs> you got to get that sleepy time too, with the little bear on it as well. That's the key that's to my yes, time Yes,
3: especially for dry January, right?
1: Yeah, yes, yes, indeed, <laughs> indeed.
3: Well, this is our first episode of the new year. And our first order of business will be to look back at a pretty old battle Does COVID-19 represent a new front in the gay civil war, the riotous partier versus the respectable citizen? Should queers with our very recent legacy of reckoning with disease be more thoughtful about how our community negotiates the moment, or are we only human? Then later, we'll be joined by Tori Peters, author of the brand new novel, Detransition Baby, a rollicking, sexy, funny, and thought-provoking look at the making of modern family. After that, we'll wrap up with our usual updates to the gay agenda. But first, it's time for Pride and Provocations. Brian, how are you feeling this month?
1: (laughs) Um, Well, I'm feeling provoked. Um, It's hard not to these days, Uh, but I'm feeling (laughs) provoked in particular... About the fact that one of our gay um, siblings has already gone and made an OnlyFans porn parody of the QAnon shaman. Um, <laughs> oh my now, if God. you don't know who the QAnon shaman is, he is one of the figures in the riots at the Capitol who was wearing a sort of um, like uh, Valkyrie's like horned helmet with fur and like face paint, and he was shirtless. Um, running around, oh, they know who he is, Brian. yeah, yeah, I imagine they do, but just in case, just in case, his proper name,
2: When he literally has tattoos of Trump's border wall, that's right, on his arms. yeah.
1: Um, so he, but you know, his proper name is the QAnon shaman, just in case you didn't know. <laughs> um, and so anyway, this, this, you know, he's he's awful and a terrorist and has been, I think, charged with like six indicted with six counts of, of bad things. Um, but <laughs> as he should be. But um, this this um, OnlyFans uh, porn performer who I uh, w- I learned about this through the uh, Instagram account neoliberal gay friend um, has already sort of impersonated him and and done a scene. I want to say that you know parody porn parody is a wonderful art form. Um, that's fine. I don't judge anyone even for finding uh, the actual QAnon shaman hot in like an abstract physical way. I think we should, you know, interrogate that. But like, it's we are human. People feel feelings. That's fine. Uh, but I really don't think that we need to be making coins off of <laughs> this particular event, especially so soon afterward. So uh, I'm gonna have to have to be a little provoked by by our OnlyFans performer for doing for doing this thing uh, quite so soon. I think.
3: I mean, I just can't even imagine s- staying hot and bothered while simultaneously being reminded of. Right. civil war right like they just they, they really mm-hmm. don't they don't occupy the same territory to me so but you know what some people you know, it takes <laughs> all kinds it takes all kinds brian
2: <laughs> you know i i'll get to this a little bit more in my gay agenda item actually but i have read in recent days some criticism of the you know there's a little bit of shock value to that sort of eroticization mm-hmm. of the of this you know QAnon nazi guy and that shock value can have the effect of ignoring people to the what should be like a shock that makes you want to ostracize yeah, those yeah. people um and so it brings that sort of imagery closer into the norm um but you know, glad people are still able to have a sex drive, <laughs> right? I know. Yeah. <laughs> proud of you. Proud of that. We're proud.
1: Of, um, we're all proud of that.
2: <laughs> I'm too. I'm I'm provoked on you know every possible axis of life right now, but I'm choosing to elevate a moment of pride right now. Um, I am proud of Helena Duke or Helena. I'm not sure whether she pronounces her name like the L word character or not. <laughs> But um, she's an 18-year-old lesbian from Massachusetts who, over the past week, has become something of a poster child for confronting racist family members. Um, So for those of you who didn't see the news story, um, Helena's cousin sent her a video that was going around of two white women and one white man, who turned out to be Helena's mom and an uncle, harassing berating and shoving around a black woman a security guard at the trump protest in dc um that security guard punched helena's mom in the video after what appeared to be helena's mom trying to grab the security guard's phone meanwhile helena this teenager didn't even know that her family members were in dc she kind of suspected it because they supported trump Um, But when she saw that the FBI was looking for names of people who could have been involved in the Capitol siege, she put their names on Twitter. And apparently her mom had told her earlier this year, don't go to Black Lives Matter protests. Mm -hmm. They're violent. You're going to get hurt. Meanwhile, then she goes to D.C. and yells at someone until she gets punched in the nose. So I'm, I'm, you know. Proud of Helena for thinking for herself and for the guts that it took to make sure her family members were identified. But I am also generally proud of what Helena has said, have been a lot of people reaching out to her and saying that they're going through similar versions of the same thing. Um, For some people, it's happened over the past four years, some people before that. uh, And, you know, where a relationship reaches a breaking point or a family member crosses a line that you can't accept. And you know, the the calling out part, which is what Helena did and how a lot of media outlets have been forming this story is really where the story starts, or I guess where one part of the story ends and another begins, because there's a lot of pain in realizing that someone who has played a big part of your life would go to D.C. to try to overturn an election or harass a black woman in a racist mob. There's pain in severing a family bond, no matter how you know, disturbed, you feel by that family member's behavior. Um, Helena's living with her father now. Um, but I want to commend all of the people who are grappling with that struggle right now and who are, you know, finding ways to move forward without compromising their values. Um, I know Helena has said that a lot of people, um, queer people have been reaching out to offer her meals to say, you know, if you're ever in such and such a city, you have a place to stay tweeting at her to make sure she's okay. A lot of other people have been uh, asking her for advice, you know, because they also have family members who may or may not have been a part of that racist mob um, or, or other racist mobs around the country. <laughs> what um, a time so. that we could
3: have multiple, <laughs> racist, multiple mobs. racist mobs. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah,
2: It was a, a moment where I saw a lot of queer people reaching out to this member of the queer family to say, I hope you're okay, what you're doing is fine, and, you know, you'll get through this. That made me proud.
3: Yeah, and she's so very young. That's so very young to be able to... I know many adults who are unable to negotiate a uh, complicated political difference with, yeah. you know, Absolutely. extended family, but to have the clarity at, you know, 18 to say, like, oh, no, I'm not interested in you know i I, i'm i'm going to i'm going to say what this is and i'm going to say it out loud that that you know ironically her parents should be pleased with how they raised her right like (laughs) um but good for her and um i hope that you know i join all those people in hoping that like she is taken care of and that she is able to like crash on someone's sofa if she needs it you know
2: yeah uh ruman what's going on with you this month
3: oh what is going on with me is that i'm extremely provoked by a (laughs) documentary series uh streaming on netflix right now called pretend it's a city which was directed by martin scorsese and is i I don't even really have a noun for it but it's basically just sort of (laughs) several hours of fran leibovitz who is a sort of a writer, maybe a a public commentator, public intellectual, whatever you want to call her, opining before the camera. I need to just quickly credit Daniel Schrader, our superb and very funny producer, who uh, referred to this documentary pretend it's a city as pretend that she's witty (laughs) there seems to be a lot of wishful thinking here about fran that she's funny that she's profound or not that she's funny there seems to be a way in which people want to see what fran has to say as really profound Mm -hmm. and i found it very shallow and very irritating and the reason I'm provoked by this so much this month is that watching this, it occurred to me that Fran Leibovitz is sort of a straight person's ideal of gay humor and conversation and philosophy, but it's extremely shallow. It's It's all sort of party chatter complaints about New York City being full of tourists or the subway not working. And as I said to all of you before we started recording this session, I feel like we have funnier, bitchier, more thought provoking exchanges in the 10 minutes before we all start recording this (laughs) podcast. So this is not what like gay wit and gay conversation are. And I am provoked by the notion that people may think that it is.
2: Do you think it's particularly, um, attractive to, straight people to see this to see those like arguments or opinions or whatever you want to call them filtered through that specific kind of
3: I do I do and I think it's I think it's very appealing to people who have not ever had the pleasure of running into a crabby old dyke at a party and listening to her talk and opine and entertain like it's Yes, I do. I think that a lot of the power of what Fran has to say comes from the context of her body and her physiognomy and like the sort of presentation. Mm -hmm. And it's just not that interesting. It's not that interesting. I know much more interesting people whose names no one will know, right? And I think that all of us do. And I mean, I've honestly, I've had like more hilarious conversations waiting to get on the ferry to Fire Island with, like, old, like, <laughs> an, like that's just hilarious, hilarious old gay guys. And, you know, it's not that Fran is not funny or not capable of being funny. I just think that she really has been phoning it in for decades, and I'm provoked by the notion that she represents um, a straight-world ideal of, like, the pinnacle of gay sort of conversation, because I just don't think that that's true. Yeah. That's spicy. Really spicy spicy <laughs> it time. is because a lot of people. Yeah, like well, well yeah. Yeah. but I, I, yeah. I have
1: to say, I, I watched the first episode of this when we considered covering it, and I was just shocked by how numb I was yeah. <laughs> to like every everything yeah. she said. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, so yes. To the
2: point where you sent an emergency. I did. <laughs> yeah. saying, this isn't worth it. We
1: can't do a whole segment I guess I just yeah. watch six more episodes of it. I was just like, no way. This yeah.
0: is not happening. This is too dumb.
3: You could have. Um, so. we, we need to introduce Martin Scorsese to, to Daniel Schrader. I would love That's to see a seven-part seven series about Daniel, our producer. I like a, that I, I would like watch. Your
1: move, Martin. Yeah. I like a provocation <laughs> with an action item attached to it. Yeah, That's there you there go. <laughs> Someone get Mr.
3: Scorsese on the phone. <laughs>
1: Ch- Chumba. no purchase necessary. Forward, forward, okay, so most of us had pretty quiet New Year celebrations this year because there was a pandemic. Uh, but not everyone. As you may have heard, the gay or really gay male internet is in the midst of a so-called civil war over the fact that some of my dear brothers decided to attend crowded circuit parties and destinations like Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, and Rio de Janeiro over the holiday, despite COVID guidelines and regulations. In response to this, a cadre of social media vigilantes, most notably the Instagram account Gaze Over COVID, began a campaign of naming and shaming, surfacing the partiers' own posts and sleuthing out names, workplaces, and other personal information in an attempt to demand what they see as community accountability. This initial clash and subsequent backlashes, multiple backlashes, spun off a swirl of Twitter threads, think pieces, influencer apologies, mainstream media coverage, and even a full-on bounty for the identity of the gays over COVID admin. On the meta level, it's generated a heated discussion about public health strategy, personal responsibility, privilege, and pleasure— All under the banner of the notion that gay men, because of our unique experience with the ongoing HIV AIDS pandemic, should know better. So, (laughs) there is a lot uh, in this whole fracas to discuss, uh, including a boat that capsized with 60 partiers on it they're all okay but you know that, that's one meme you
2: i feel between that and the trump boat yes. parade yeah. caps this is like the year where but like poseidon
3: it's
1: a bad year for boaters for bad sure for, for sure <laughs> um so yeah there's so many details and our, our our listeners have probably seen you know the memes or the articles or whatever but um, i thought for us we would just start at the beginning. Um, I'm sure none of the three of us are going to defend circuit parties during COVID, uh, but I am curious how we sort of personally feel about the the gaze over COVID or the, the the vigilante strategy of outing these guys. What's your what's your sort of initial response to that?
2: So, I'm honestly getting a little tired of the comparison to HIV, and I know harm reduction conversations are really important. And obviously I believe in Mm -hmm. harm reduction as like an important framework for public health. Um, But I think COVID is different from HIV in enough ways that the same, the strategies that didn't work to curb HIV transmissions could possibly work to help curb the transmission of COVID. For example, um, with HIV, it's, it's possible for everyone involved in a sexual situation to issue informed consent to the risk. So if everyone at a sex party says, "Okay, no condoms, we're fine with that." That's obviously not great for public health, but it, they're the only ones who will be affected by that particular party, assuming that they're, you know, next partners and next partners also consent and blah blah. With COVID, you know, all these party gays are consenting to the risk, but what about the, you know, cancer survivors? Or the like, workers with autoimmune disease who are staffing the hotels and restaurants where they're going in wherever they are. Like, I also think that the the gaze over COVID Instagram account. You know, they're posting videos from enormous parties and also photos from smaller like dinner parties and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, those aren't really the same things. So. I think like the 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 15 person dinner party again not great for public health but the bigger parties you need the cooperation of large venues to make mm-hmm. that happen and you know there are ways to make sure that doesn't happen and that's something that isn't applicable to the transmission of HIV at all because that's you know largely transmitted through drug use and uh, mm. sex, <laughs> which, which are the things that happen like on an individual basis without the cooperation of right. business owners and vendors. I feel like the things that we are assuming won't work because they'll drive parties further underground actually could work because they're, you know, maybe we do want these things to exist underground in that they're not able to have access to large party spaces or they're not being posted on social media, which makes other people who see those things on social media think that it's okay.
3: Yeah, I think, Christina, you're absolutely right. If if we as a society were genuinely invested in preserving the public health, then the partners for the, the government in the, in that preservation would be institutions like airlines, as opposed to individuals. It doesn't make any sense. It's completely preposterous, right? At the same time... There's something deeply irritating to me about a scold, a, public, a social media scold. If you were genuinely committed as an individual to identifying ways to help society deal with the fallout of what is happening right now, then what you would be doing is making sure that... Public school children in your neighborhood were able to get access to free meals. You wouldn't be shaming a doctor in Minneapolis for flying to a party. Like, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous waste of time. It's extremely sanctimonious and tiring. And it's kind of like a weird, like, battle of smugness, where it's sort of like the smug, the smug, unapologetic partygoer versus the sort of smug anonymous scold of the internet naming these individuals accomplishes absolutely nothing nothing naming you know it doesn't there because because first of all the risk has already been the risk has already taken place right so You're trying to shame somebody for a decision they would have made earlier in time. It's too late to put that back in the bottle and say, like, go back in time and mitigate the exposure of the theoretical woman who works in the hotel where you stayed, right? Like, that's not possible to do. So what is it you're trying to accomplish? Are you trying to accomplish a sense of atonement on the that individual conscience who's going to say, like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have gone to a party? I just don't think that's likely to happen. I
2: think it's supposed to work as a deterrent so that people will say, oh, like, my community thinks this is a bad thing to do. So maybe well, I won't do it.
1: That raises an interesting point that's sort of at the at the center of this, which is the question of community, right? Like, do we like? I think you're right, Christina, that from from the perspective of a um, of a you call them a shamer, call them an accountability, a scold, um, that they are imagining that we that that there is a shared community such that one would feel the opprobrium of that community as a deterrent, mm-hmm. right? That like, oh. The other mm-hmm. gay, my other gays, hate me. So, or are you know disappointed in me uh, for this thing? So, so maybe I shouldn't do it. And I wonder. I've been thinking throughout all of this. Like maybe we just have different ideas of community, right? Like I, I feel mm-hmm. that way. I, I imagine myself part of a, a sort of. Um, you know, sweeping queer um, uh, uh, family um, th- such that that kind of thing would have power over me. But maybe these, I, I wonder if these people feel that way or if, and this is bringing in another element by dint of their sort of class and race privilege, because it's mostly white people and certainly wealthier people who are able to afford to, to travel to Mexico in the first place to go to a party. Um, maybe by the end of that, they, they actually are not part of our community or don't, or don't feel a part of the mm-hmm. community.
2: And they, they're a part of right. their own community that is insular enough that they're all approving of what each mm-hmm. other is doing.
1: Yeah,
2: I think another reason why these particular gays have been such um, easy or attractive targets is because usually in normal life, some people might see those videos and experience a little bit of FOMO or jealousy or like, damn, all those people are hot. But now they get to feel superiority. And I think the frivolity and the decadence of these parties is, makes it different and more attractive to a potential scold, to yeah. use your word, on than like a college kid going on spring break or something like that.
3: Right. I mean, these are not people who are going home to have Thanksgiving with their aunt mm-hmm. Judy. These are right. people who are going to whatever exotic place, um, warm beautiful place to dance with people who look exactly like them as you've said, Christina. But like and so I just think that there's something the Schadenfreude that you're describing of like this sort of revenge of the nerd (laughs) scenario in which like the person who would normally not see themselves reflected there gets to occupy the moral high ground and say like, those people are bad is also kind of bad. It's also kind of irritating and it's very easy to dismiss. I think it's easy for the targets of that ire to dismiss it as like, oh, you're mm-hmm. jealous or you don't get it or you're a
1: geek, you know, like you don't, you know, and...
2: Which, yes, and that's irresponsible.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, they literally have. It's, it's funny you put it that way because the, in the, the the first backlash from the partiers, they, among other things, accused the, the critics for being ugly <laughs> and yeah. jealous. Yeah. So, you know, so that that's not uh, sort of elevating <laughs> the conversation. But I do think it's, it's important... As you, bo- <laughs> it's important as you both have done to bring in kind of the circuitness of it. I mean, maybe it's worth for our listeners just to back up for a second and be like, and note that rather that um, these parties are a long-standing source, like source spot mm-hmm. in the community, right? Because and the, and the sort of the community around them is a source stop spot because yes, they are indeed. Um, you know, uh, as I said before, sort of white, wealthy for the most part, uh, muscled. Uh, they like check your attractive. BMI
2: at the door, basically.
1: <laughs> yeah, sort. Of, I mean, maybe <laughs> uh, we should fact check that, but par- could be. Um, and so, you know, I think that there is a little bit of of perhaps jealousy. I, I don't know if I would extend that to everyone, but but maybe that. But also respectability Mm -hmm. politics, I think that there is an element of... And you see it sort of in the comment threads um, under these posts and and on these articles uh, where people just clearly, like, hate or or disapprove in some way of the idea of dancing all night, of doing the drugs that are associated with these events, of having the kind of sex that is associated with these events. Um, And that's, you know, that's fine to have that opinion, but it actually is sort of separate from the question of, you know, doing it now, COVID, all of that. So I think it is useful to tease those two things apart and acknowledge that, indeed, there's a little bit of, uh, I think you said at the top, Norman, like a longstanding kind of um, animosity there that that's being activated. Um, I wanted to take it back a little bit, uh, Christina, you, meant, you brought up um, the HIV comparison and all of that. We had a really great article in Slate that we'll link to on the show page from um, Alexander Borsa, who is a PhD student at Columbia University in Social Medical Sciences, and he, he sort of works in public health activism and that kind of thing. Um, and he wrote a lot about how um, the research on HIV/AIDS and drug use around shaming really does show that it doesn't work; that it that it does indeed drive um, people underground and that, you know, if you, that it might be very satisfying to disapprove of these people, but that if you actually care about impacting behaviors, um, shame just really isn't the way to go. And, and I thought the thing that the, the piece was smart about was saying, um, you know, people do need pleasure, right? People seek pleasure. It's a part of human experience. And in some register, a way of looking at what these guys are doing, and it's not to excuse it, but it's just to, to sort of cast it in a different light, is, is something that we all want, right? We all want pleasure in one way or another, and we've been deprived of it, um, deprived of it during this this time. Um, and so his, his sort of argument is like, how do we find our way to a more balanced place where we're acknowledging that people are going to do things whether it's a crazy circuit party or something smaller, like maybe Christina's, you know, Thanksgiving plan that we might disapprove of, um, but how do we how do we sort of come to a conversation where we can be intelligent about accommodating those things in ways that might reduce harm, that might be be sort of strategic rather than outright condemning? So I wonder um, if you guys have like a response to that this idea of pleasure mm-hmm. in particular um, during this time.
2: I guess I think we all want that. And many people are capable of taking extreme measures to deny themselves that throughout this pandemic.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, I I know I'm not saying anything new here, but it does feel like another thing I've been thinking about is when you talked about the difference between the circuit party community and the broader queer community Something that Mm -hmm. might have been effective would be to find the leaders or hosts of circuit parties and try to get them on board. Because I also think there's a lot of intra-community pressure. And if all of your friends and social circles are going to Rio for an enormous party, you're going to have FOMO if you don't go Maybe you're feeling pressure to go. Maybe the information you're getting is from all people saying it's really not a big deal to go on a plane. We're going to be safe about this, whatever. So if you're able to sort of convince the thought leaders of the circuit party community, (laughs) um, I think that could have an impact. The piece that you're talking about, Brian, I, I definitely felt it was an interesting perspective. But the suggestions that Alex raised, like, oh, maybe trying to get some of these people to you know, the the circuit party community to commit to a week-long quarantine period afterwards or something like that. I don't know. I kind of feel like if, if they were already um, committed to harm reduction, they wouldn't be having the parties in the first place. And yeah. I... I also think a person who hosts a circuit party in a vulnerable country during the worst part of the pandemic, while there's a vaccine in sight, you know, I have a hard time imagining how those suggestions would be implemented. And I actually think if, you know, the shaming part about, oh, you're going to force it all underground and we're not going to see it happening, so we won't know how to mitigate it. Well, I think if... We didn't see it happening on social media. There might be less pressure or desire to make it happen in the first place because some of the no, reason why people go to these things is yeah. so that they're able to Instagram themselves having a great time with yeah. their friends.
3: I liked Alex's piece, but like if you look at the comments on it, oh, I never read the comments. comments. What the comments um, say? <laughs> well, it, what, what it does for me is reveal the extent to which people, especially under the circumstances of quarantine find pleasure in this act of shaming, right? Mm. That social media is not just a place to broadcast, but it's a place to feel a part of another, of of Mm -hmm. society. And so, one way to, like, claim membership in that is to project your ire onto, in some ways, a very obvious target for your ire, which is these like, pneumatically muscled white guys, right? Like, it's very... It's very tempting, and it's very simple. And you also get to sort of pretend that you're doing it under the guise of morality. But I don't think any of that is true. I think it's all ridiculous. I don't think it's born necessarily of being, like, ugly and (laughs) feeling like you aren't invited to the cool party. But I do think it is an ugly um, impulse that is in some ways not that far removed from the impulse of those circuits you know, followers to go to a party and be with their people. It's the same. It's like the same impulse, just like reaching to out for be, community, basically. Yes, to be part of the yeah. group, to be like we're part of the group, and we're the group that has the moral high ground. Yeah, you know, yeah. and it's very, it's very silly and very shallow to me because just to simply name people in it's it's very different from our hero lesbian teen naming people who actually broke a law and deserve to, you know, deserve the wrath of the federal government. (laughs) It's just naming, like, people you don't know who did something that you don't really understand the context of. You know, as you said, Christina, like, sometimes they're dinner parties. You just, you may not understand what the larger context is, but that's not the point. The point is to get to say, I am part of this group the group that is making the correct moral judgment and gets to hide behind the internet's anonymity and say like you who posted this picture are a bad person. Yeah. And I just don't think it's I just don't think it's getting anyone anywhere. I really don't. I guess
2: for me it also I would have a little more sympathy for some of the shamer's because I think one reason why people are shaming in this moment is to make themselves feel okay about their decisions and their lack of a social life, because it does feel really bad to see. I mean, the the times when I've felt most like, fuck it, I'm going to go, you know, to Puerto Vallarta, has been when I see (laughs) other people on social media traveling and having these great Christina is a secret circuit
1: queen. I was
2: the only woman at that party. You guys didn't see me. Everyone was taller than me. I was, like, down by all of their pets. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, that's my ultimate dream party, actually. Um, But, like, seeing other people traveling, hanging out in groups makes me feel like, oh, and none of them got sick, and maybe it's not so bad. Maybe I'm going to do it, or, like and and not that i've been part of this covid shaming or whatever but i can see how people might do that to make themselves feel like it's okay i made the right choice i'm doing something good i'm making these sacrifices for a reason and yeah. the way the reason why my life sucks now is for some sort of higher good and it's not yeah. you know mm. and, and i'm going to continue doing that this is like the way i'm pumping myself up to keep making yeah. those sacrifices
3: I think the unfortunate thing is that, like, there's no consequence, no tangible consequence on either end of the equation. You don't get sent to detention (laughs) if you break these rules, and you don't get a sticker if you follow them.
1: Well, I think that is a good place to leave it. I would love to hear from listeners um, about your thoughts about this. um, Especially if
2: you were at any of those parties, or if you've been shamed. I'd love to hear that perspective.
1: Christina is dying to hear from a circuit queen. Uh, and invite me to uh, your next party. A, her fellow, a fellow, a fellow circuit queen, right, about uh, about the experience from the inside. So we, we'd certainly, if, if someone writes us with that, we will read it, because I would I would love to uh, read it on the show, because I would love to hear it. Um, and I just wanted to plug again, Alex Alex Borsa's piece in Slate, it's called um, Gay Circuit Parties During COVID Sparked a Civil War, Can Anyone Win? Um, Go check that out if you want to learn more, and uh, we'll have it on the show page.
0: On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things.
1: I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar
0: sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Detransition
2: Baby is the debut novel from Tori Peters. It came out earlier this month. The book follows Reese, a trans woman in her 30s who desperately wants to be a mother And Ames, Reese's former lover and former trans woman who now has detransitioned and lives as a man. Ames's girlfriend, Katrina, a cis woman, has an unplanned pregnancy, and Ames suggests that the three of them co-parent the child together. Dramedy ensues. We're so happy to welcome Tori to the show. Tori, thank you for joining us on Outward.
4: Thank you for having me. That was a pretty good, uh, like, like pitch of the book it's, it's actually I still have a hard time being like here's the plot and yeah like, more sentences
2: I had a weirdly hard time writing that summary yeah. so thank you yeah. um it's so much more than that um so uh, there's a, a story here but uh, obviously there's a story in your novel but it's also full of general observations about trans culture and, uh, tangents about the way gender operates. I'm wondering how many of these moments in your book are, you know, recounting debates that you've had with friends or wanted to have, or just slivers of trans life that you've sort of been waiting to document and explore.
4: I mean, um, I would say a, a overwhelming majority of them, <laughs> you know, like, uh, there was like about like halfway through that I was writing it where I was like, instead of saying like these things on like Twitter or something, I'm just going to put them mm. in the book. And, and that was actually good also because some of them are like when you had to publish it two years later, you're like, Oh, that actually isn't relevant and I don't care to have that conversation. And it huh. was like, it was like a filter for the, the thoughts that to have that much time on what would normally be sort of topical conversations for me, it was a lot of it was fun because it's I talk in the book the way I talk with my friends, you know, and it's just a little gossipy, a little like you know maybe slightly bitchy, and <laughs> just you know it, it was uh, it was fun to have a place to put that with that is that wasn't loaded with so much of the expectations that that I think one has if one's having these conversations in real time in the public.
2: Yeah, and I mean detransitioning obviously is a topic that has not only been weaponized against trans people, but is also just an incredibly difficult conversation to have within queer communities. And I imagine, especially in trans communities. Um, and in your book, you, the, the different trans characters in your book have different perspectives on detransitioning. I mean, Reese doesn't actually believe that Ames is truly a man. I'm wondering how you tackled that and and what made you want to explore detransitioning specifically?
4: I mean, there is a piece of it that I think was, you know, responding to like the general culture, but I think more of it is that like, I know people who detransitioned mm. and the way that it gets talked about uh, and like the media is not how I talk about it with mm. my friends who have gone through periods of detransition.
1: You actually write at one point that it's that it's largely boring, which was such a striking, like the reasons for it are sort of, you know, understandable and boring. And that, that was like, sort of surprising to me.
4: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you have these conversations and you, if you actually are like the reason, like a lot of the reasons that people do things, there's a sort of like sexy version of, mm-hmm. of talking about trans. And then there's like, you know, why did I transition or why do people detransition? transition? It's like, well, I just kind of want to make my life marginally better in one way or another. And I'm like compromising and negotiating in whatever mm-hmm. way that is. So like, you know, when, when the character of Ames detransitions, it's, it's not because like, Oh, he had some like huge revelation about his gender. It was like, actually my life is really hard on a day-to-day basis as a trans woman. And my feelings are hurt a lot. And like, maybe I can sort of, emphasize like advantages in sort of like my outer way that I navigate the world instead of my inner identity and that negotiation, which is like a kind of negotiation that everybody Mm -hmm. does. It doesn't matter if you're like trans, like what are you going to wear in the morning is like a negotiation of your presentation versus what, you know, how you want the world to see you, how you see yourself and like, you know, putting on office clothes, putting on like a uniform to go to a job that that you're like, I hate wearing this uniform. You know, mm-hmm. that's, it's, it's like sometimes <clears throat> things about trans life are that banal, you yeah. know?
1: The sort of issue of, of readership and what the reader should do or can do was really in my mind the whole time I was reading this because, um, you know, one, one of the pleasures of the book is that it is maybe, I can't really think of another work of fiction that where the scaffolding of the story is just so deeply queer, like in the sense of the concepts that are sort of invoked, the politics, the debates, the humor, like all of that is is just so um, just like unapologetically queer and not even always explained. And I was wondering, like, when you were writing, were you at all, because when one publishes a book, like, you do have to think about not just your ideal reader, but like, all the readers that you would like to sort of, or at least your press would like, like to, to pick it up. Yeah. Um, I mean, were you ever concerned or, uh, yeah, just like thinking about cis readers or non-queer readers and how they would react to just this world that is so deeply, you know, queer?
4: I mean, I think that this is, it has to do with like this particular moment, you know, and I think it has to do with the fact that this, the press was willing to go with it, which is that I think there've been periods of my time where I, of my life where i felt you know adversarial to cis readers but i'm i've come to a place where i basically like think that cis readers can mm-hmm. keep up and i think it's like for me that's something that that i think a lot about um i mean where sort of trans writing is i i like to like sort of peg it to like other minority mm. literatures that came before it and so i think a lot about like um, you know, what was able to be said by like Ralph Ellison or Toni Morrison or now what's being able to be said. And um, and I sort of think about like Toni Morrison saying that I write explicitly for black women. And the fact is like, you know, when she published like Sula or something, the, the New York Times couldn't, you read the mm-hmm. review, they couldn't quite mm-hmm. get it. But in the subsequent years, it turns out that like all sorts of readers, all sorts of white readers, readers of all sorts, Tony Morrison didn't slow down to explain, but we can all keep up. And it's
2: I felt like it was a privilege as a yeah. cis reader to be sort of welcomed into this world in a like non-didactic way and just be trusted to understand the story and come to my own conclusions about it. Um and in fact you dedicate the book to cis women. You seem to have a lot of empathy for cis women. You know, in a way that I don't even have empathy for cis women <laughs> as much as it seems you do. You know, where does that come from?
4: I mean, I didn't always have it. But as I was writing this book, I was reading a lot of books by divorced mm-hmm. cis women. So like Rachel Kosk, mm-hmm. I, I was kind of like really deep into Ferrante. I got and, and what I saw was that this sort of trajectory of like a, a divorce story, let's say is is like it's a it's a thing where you have an an idea about yourself and and what your life is going to be like until a certain point and then you there's a break from that and you have to reinvent yourself you have to like maybe move make new friends change your name you have to like not get bitter hmm. you have to not like get resentful and you also can't like just reinvest in those same illusions that got you there otherwise you're gonna have a, a second failure and that story that trajectory that arc is exactly the same as a transition arc you know it was like mm. when I was when I was at the point where the divorce stories have the divorce I transitioned and I needed to like figure my figure myself out, figure out how to live. And I took a lot of comfort from mm. those books. Like it wasn't just like, oh I have empathy. It was like I learned. I learned like ways of like here's what it means to make a hard choice. Here's what it means to like, not just like live in your messy emotions. Like all of those things that those books were doing, I needed to learn. And then as I was writing, I was like, you know what, I actually think I have something to say back to these books. Like, mm-hmm. I think my experience as a trans woman, it will be useful. Like this way that I have of thinking about gender that I learned from, from other trans women and thinking about what I want. I think there's a lot of like straight cis women that could... That could find comfort in thinking about their attraction or their gender in ways that like trans women have come to think about their, their genders and attractions uh, in order to like negotiate the fact that like none of us get to have this fit us perfectly. You know,
2: this is something that I've is like a a little pet peeve of mine and that I've talked about on the show is that so many fictional representations of queer life are about, coming out, homophobia or transphobia dying or you know s- starting out as as queer and then ending up not queer. Mm-hmm. And I maybe it's because I am starting to enter the like middle period of my life but I feel like I just want so many more depictions of what queer life is like when you're already out, you're not going back in and you're just living your life and making decisions within a queer context, but not necessarily, um, you know, where like homophobia or, or I guess transphobia is like the only challenge mm-hmm. in your life. And that's one thing that I appreciated so much about your book is that it talked about, you know, these desires that these women have that don't have to do with, you know, am I trans or not or something like that? Is that, were you trying to fill a gap in a trans literature or, you know, uh, fictional depictions of trans life?
4: I mean, I think in some ways I was frustrated with what I was finding that I wanted to write like uh, a sincerely adult novel. And I mean that in like the uncoolest (laughs) sense of adult, you know, like.
2: Although there is a lot of adult content in it, which I also appreciated.
4: But like, like, I don't mean just me like, yes, (laughs) there is. And partly it's like things like sex, but also like. You know, there's whole like things about like a dining room table Um, set. Like what kind of dining room table set are you going to get if you're going to keep this for the rest of your life? And that's actually like, I think for a long time, like those kind of questions seem really boring to me. And, but there's a way in which like the the concerns that you just talked about that you see in a lot of queer literature are also concerns that you largely find in YA books, you know, like who's Mm going to love me? Who am I? What if my parents reject me? Is the world scary? Like that kind of stuff is is actually those are YA concerns, and and I don't mean that in a, in a derisive way. I just mean that like that's a particular set of concerns that have been conflated with what it means to write queer queer books. And and when I was looking again, like at these divorce novels, but I was like, these are adult books. Mm. These are books about like, what if my kids don't like me? What you know? Mm. What does it mean to like? when I'm sort of locked into the choices I've already made in my life, you know, I can't go, the whole world isn't my oyster anymore. I've made choices. I've got to live with regrets. Um, And my past is always going to define me. Those are, those are adult concerns. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to see what those adult concerns looked like if I applied them to sort of my life. And again, I don't, I don't mean that in sort of privileging, I'm like, oh, adult stuff is more mature. It's just, it's a separate set of uh, worries and, and- Yeah.
1: One of the um, things that I thought you wrote most beautifully about is um, queer intergenerationality or, or sort of the differences between queer generations. And you have this passage um, that's coming from Ames about uh, juvenile elephants Um, which I, um, you know, he's talking about it from a trans perspective, but I related to it as a gay man too, because part of it is about having lost a whole generation of elders that would have, um, you know, taught us how to be like in the world, right? And I think that mm-hmm. it, 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 you know, HIV is an overlapping point between those two groups, but, but they're different in other ways, too. Um, I wondered if you could just explain that sort of uh, model, I guess, to, to our listeners, because I just found it so uh, smart and insightful.
4: Well, sure, I'll try and do this quickly. Because um, it's a complicated metaphor. But basically, Elephants have a culture, like elephants, the animal have a culture. It's a matriarchal culture. So, elephants are huge. They have a lot of power. They have a lot of like you know emotions essentially, and uh, it's the mothers who teach the young elephants how to behave, how to like not lash out because if an elephant lashes out, it creates a lot of destruction. Like one swing of that trunk, and so the so elephants spend a lot of time learning from elders how to control themselves. Um, And then poachers came along and they killed an entire generation of mother elephants who would have taught young elephants how to control themselves. So you have, and oftentimes in front of these young elephants that are traumatized. So what ended up happening is you had these groups of traumatized young elephants like running across the game parks in various countries, like wreaking havoc, just having no social codes, not understanding how to control their trauma and rage. And for me, when I thought about, you know, what it looks like to be trans, especially like on the internet, or, you know, lots of times, just like in basic sociality, like the, our ways that we interact with each other, and sometimes end up ostracizing each other, or hurting each other, you know, this metaphor felt really resonant, in that the, the mother figures who would have been like, hey, girls, like, chill out they We lost them to HIV we lost them to to substance we lost them to suicide, we lost them to going stealth you know because they couldn't be openly trans uh, so they just disappeared into sort of cis hetero world um, and so we ended up being a kind of orphan generation um, who are now teaching ourselves um, how to be and and making a lot of mistakes and and sometimes creating a lot of damage along the way
2: and this question comes from Ruman. I'll give him credit for it. Do you see yourself and this book as a, a, a mother elephant? I guess. Do you do you see yourself sort of taking that role?
4: Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I, I think you know, for me, the book at the end is sort of like ask, posing the question, like, how are you going to live? And and it's not to have like a lot of emotions. I mean, th- there's a lot of emotions and stuff in the book, but but ultimately the way you feel isn't going to solve it. Like you can't stay stuck. You can't stay angry. Like, well, it's hard for you to be, to be a trans woman. It's hard for us to be trans women. It's sort of like, what are you going to do? How are you going to live? Like, you know, your life's going to keep going on. Are you going to live in your fifties the way you did in your twenties? Like what kind of choices are you going to make? And, um, those questions were were posed to me. I was lucky enough to have some mother figures, and I have some sort of trans daughters who I, you know, pose those questions to. And sometimes I get resentment in posing them, and and sometimes I definitely felt resentment from people being like, "Well, what what next? Like your feelings aren't good enough. You have to choose to do something." So I, I, I actually have those those relationships. Um, in my life. And I think my favorite reading, I, I want the book to do a lot of things for a lot of different audiences, but my favorite reading from a kind of trans audience or trans women would be people who are willing to to read it that way. Cause it takes a lot of humility to be told what to do by a book, you know, <laughs> um, especially a book that is obviously messy and that has mistakes, life mistakes baked into it, you know, it's so easy to say some to see somebody else's mistakes and be like, well, you don't know what you're doing. Um, yeah. And I'm hoping that the book can can be both a mother figure, not just in that a mother, mother figure is a positive role model, but a mother figure in that a lot of mother figures are negative role models. We don't necessarily want to do what our mothers have done. And um, I do hope that the book can do that for people.
2: This was yeah, so wonderful. Absolutely. Again, reading your book was such a, a pleasure, it's still, you know, burrowed inside of my head, and I can't wait to recommend it to everybody. Tori, thank you so much for joining us. Again, Tori Peter's book is Detransition Baby. It's out
4: now. Thank you, Tori. Thank you so much for having me.
3: That's about it for this month. But before we go, as usual, we're going to talk about our own updates to the gay agenda. Brian, would you like to get us started?
1: Yeah. So my gay agenda item for this month is actually a response to the new season of RuPaul's Drag Race, which started on New Year's um, and so far is incredibly boring. Um, I don't know about our listeners who are watching, but um, the way that they've split the queens up, I think for COVID reasons into two teams and no one is losing and it's, it's very strange, is kind of ruining the show. So um, as an antidote to that, uh, my partners and I decided to, to finally try um, the Boulay Brothers' Dragula. Now, I've known about this for, for a long time. It's got, uh, th- I think, three seasons out already. But I just hadn't turned it on. And, man, that was a mistake. This show is one of the most amazing um, queer productions I've ever uh, encountered. Um, it's available on Netflix. Um, I'm only uh, still in the midst of season one, um, but it is just so much more fun than Drag Race. The uh, The artistry on display um, is is just, you know, I don't want to say it's like better than the queens on Drag, Drag Race because the sh- that show doesn't really give them the opportunity to show it off. But the queens on, um, and kings, I should say, on Dragula, are just doing amazing uh, craft work, s- s- uh, seamstress work, making their own clothes, the cabaret, the burlesque. Um, it's just it's just wild. And I should say, uh, if you're not familiar and haven't gathered from the title, it's very goth, very punk. Um, Dracula is 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 sort of that style. So, is that side of things? It can be a little um, uh, grotesque sometimes, but uh, it is just so refreshing to see um, to see this kind of drag really, um, prized and, and held up. Um, it's, it's the kind of stuff that I, that I, you know, most enjoyed when we used to be able to go to bars. Um, so it's, it's really fun to see that on television. So if you're looking for, uh, you know, a, a refreshment after the boredom of the new season of uh, RuPaul's Drag Race, definitely go over and check out, uh, the Boule Brothers' Dragula. Um, I, I don't think you'll regret it.
2: So my gay agenda item is related to your provocation, Brian, Um, the eroticization of the QAnon shaman and the news that Ashley Babbitt, the insurrectionist who was killed by Capitol Police at the riot, was queer and in a triad with her husband and a girlfriend. Um, Actually, like the day or two after she was killed, there was a photo going around of her with... What looked to me like a butch queer and I kind of tweeted like does anybody know this person like this butch queer wearing a QAnon shirt turns out Ashley Babbitt was queer and it prompted me to do a little reading on the history of gays and fascism and. Um, The connection there has...
3: A little light reading, (laughs) Christina. (laughs) Before
2: I go to bed, just to calm me down after a long day of writing about the siege. Um, (laughs) And I wonder why my mental health is suffering in the pandemic. So the connection between gays and fascists has been... Really overstated, I think, in some cases, like I don't subscribe to the idea that fascism is inherently queer. Some do. Um, There are claims that there was a large gay faction in the Nazis. Those have been largely disproven, although one top Nazi, Ernst Röhm, was gay. Um, But one piece I really appreciated that I found, well simply Googling gays and fascism was a 2018 (laughs) article by James Kirchick in the New York review of books titled a thing for men in uniforms. Kirchick does really comprehensive work of explaining the different major players, if you want to call them that in gay fascism throughout modern history and what scholars Mm. have said about some gays attraction to fascism, um, including Susan Sontag who also wrote her own, um, piece for the New York Review of Books in the 70s called Fascinating Fascism, where she talks about the sort of sexual fantasy that is inherent to fascist aesthetics. Uh, She called it a master scenario available to everyone, you know, between the Mm. uniforms, the leather, the uh, fantasies of domination, And one nugget that I found particularly fascinating was this idea raised by some gay fascists um, in Japan and Germany that their identity is really the most manly embodiment of human sexuality because it's an appreciation for manhood that holds, you know, the male form as this perfect Mm. ideal. And if you take fascism's glorification of strength and Domination, force, traditional masculinity to its ultimate ends, plus its devaluation of femininity and women—you get for these men homosexuality. If if you're ready for like a little bit of a dense and depressing dive into gay Nazis, white supremacists, and authoritarians, I highly recommend this piece. Um, <laughs> and you know, I think it's it it's. Not irrelevant today to interrogate why some queer people find uh, authoritarianism attractive. I'm not saying that for all all of the gay people involved in the Capitol siege or other uh, you know neo fascist movements that their sexuality is in- intertwined at all with that ideology but for some people it is and um, yeah. just you know a fun way to see yourself uh, reflected or not reflected in these terrifying movements that are on the rise
3: wow that sounds really really heady and I really feel like I have a window into Christina's downtime <laughs> <now>. <laughs> that when I'm not in proto
2: viarta partying my ass off
3: yeah <laughs> <laughs> A little, a little Sontag before bed, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: Ruman, what are you going to recommend for us? Something, something happier, maybe?
3: Oh, well, I'm going to recommend something that I think is that I found very touching. Um, I, so Tommy Lasorda, who was the manager of a baseball team, I don't even know which one because I don't care about baseball, died a couple weeks ago, um, quite old in his 90s. And the news reminded me that when I was 15, I had read a piece in GQ magazine about the death of Tommy Lasorda's son, Tommy Lasorda Jr., uh, from AIDS. And as I said, I was a kid, I was 15 years old, and I think we probably all queer adults have a half memory of reading something that really seemed to communicate something deeper just to them. Mm -hmm. And that was exactly how I felt reading this piece in GQ magazine at 15. It seemed to be, it seemed to contain a message for me. Mm -hmm. And I am 43, so this was 28 years ago, and I remember that piece, and I remember the photographs really, really clearly. And hearing that Tommy Lasorda had died, I began Google I, I was like oh I, I should Google that article I vaguely remember reading and I found that it is archived at Deadspin right now and I read it again and it was just the most overwhelming and powerful feeling of recognition of my own youth mm. and it's also a pretty startling document about changing attitudes towards HIV mm. and AIDS towards the way uh, towards queerness generally. It's hard to imagine a contemporary sports figure rejecting the queerness in their own family um, in quite the same way that Lasorda did with respect to his son. It's a really lovely story. And it's also the kind of magazine story. I mean, all three of us are sort of, you know, people who were drawn into this field for a certain reason. And it's the kind of magazine story you don't often read anymore because Tommy Lasorda Jr. was not a famous Mm -hmm. person. It was simply a really good writer trying to find something, who found something really interesting in this particular story. So the writer's name is Peter Richmond. It's archived at Deadspin as the brief life and complicated death of Tommy Lasorda's gay son. It's from the October 1992 issue of GQ magazine, and I highly recommend it.
1: Okay, uh, that is our show for this first month of 2021, which we were promised would get better, so let's hope that that is true next month. Uh, please send us feedback and topic ideas at outwardpodcasts at slate.com or via Facebook and Twitter. We're at Slate Outward on both of those. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Podcasts and in non-pandemic times, the circuit queen supreme. <laughs> If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app, rate and review us uh, so others can find it, tell your friends about it, let everyone know that uh, you're on the Outward team. We'll be back in your feeds next month on the 17th. Um, bye, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye. Miss you. Stay gay.